And we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to Children's Church. Dismiss half our church to Children's Church. right a lot of nights I go to bed and I'm and I worry about things a lot on my mind sometimes but I never have to worry about my children it is a blessing We're in chapter 15 of Mark, and uh, I've never preached the crucifixion on the first Sunday of Advent ever in my life. But how appropriate it is that we start at the ending, so to speak, during this season of the year. We get all caught up in Christmas sometime. Well, all the time. We like Christmas. And it's real easy to forget why we have Christmas at all. And it is because God came to be with us, knowing full well what that would mean for Him. And, and we, not having any idea what it would mean for Him. And that's what makes this time of year so innocent, so remarkable. Is that for a little while during this time of the year, we begin we can we can take time and say you know there really is an innocence of this life with god he just came to us that way but it doesn't last long in fact most of the time we can just turn on the tv and realize that it it can't last too long uh while we're celebrating uh a football victory yesterday they're they're cleaning up a shooting where 10 people are, are wounded, you know, and then somewhere else. And it kind of just takes the guilt off of everything and you begin to understand that we live in a fallen, broken world and God had to do something about it. And that's what Christmas is about. But how do we get to this place? How do we get to where we are today in chapter 15? And as I read, I'm going to read a lot of it. I'm going to read all the way through to, um, to through verse 41. I'm not going to preach on all 41 verses. But I do want you to hear the story, and I want you to hear it. to listen closely. Because Jesus finds Himself in the midst of this moment all alone. And in the strangest ways, from the strangest places, we find that there are those reaching out that do not want Him to be alone, but yet He is alone And that matters in this story. It matters for us. So in verse 1, it begins. It says, As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elder scribes and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, 
You say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate questioned him again. Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. There was a rebellion like just a few months before this Passover event. It's a pretty violent rebellion. And they had locked up a lot of people. Barabbas was the leader of this rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate uh, to do for them what was his custom. Pilate answered him, What do you want me to do? Release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred the crowd up so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked him again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Well, but why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and, having, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now, this was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The, ins the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of the Jews, come down from that cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakthani, which is translated, My God, 
My God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite of him saw the way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. We're going to stop there. How do we get to this point? How do we get to the point to where God sends His only begotten, only beloved Son to us to save us from our sin? And this is the way it has to be. It is our sin that gets us here. Our individual sin and that sin way back old, that old, old, old pre-mortal sin that we always talk about where Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. You remember the story? And the serpent says, no need to trust him. He's not telling you the truth. Do what you want to do. And they did. And the minute that they did, they realized that they weren't who they were created to be because shame came upon them and God did not create shame. He did not put them in a garden so that they would be shameful. They did what they wanted to do and immediately they realized they were not who they were created to be. And their first thought was to hide from the one who had created them. So they hid. And God comes looking in the cool of the day as he was inclined to do, to go find those created in his image. And so he calls out to them, where are you? They say, well, we're hiding. Why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. Well, who told you you were naked? And on and on and on it goes. Until finally we get to the end of the story. And God says, we have to separate them from us. If they stay with us and they ever eat of the fruit of the tree of life, then this sinful brokenness that they're in will last forever. So what does God do? He turns them out of the garden and there at the edge of the garden He places a seraphim with what? Flaming swords so that they cannot enter. They cannot come back. And in that moment, in that first moment, human beings begin to understand what it meant to be alone. 
totally alone and separated from God. You know, you weren't meant to ever be alone. My, you know, when, when somebody says, this is what hell's like, I've never thought about it being fire and brimstone. I've always heard it as there'd be fire and brimstone and you, you would hear people screaming and yelling. And I can tell you this, I would rather be in the company of people screaming and yelling than be in a cold, dark, damp place all alone for eternity. I can't imagine being alone to the point to where I would never, ever know the contact of anyone ever, ever again for eternity. All I would have, maybe, is memories of what that might be like. I think the torment of hell, for me, would be never in contact again with anything living. Even in the midst of torment, it would be better than nothing. I know that sounds crazy. I know what the Bible says about it. I know what I fear the most. <laughs> it's being alone. See, a, a, alone, being alone is the ultimate loss. And we're not built for loss. When we go to funerals and we see a loved one who has passed, it is painful for us because we are alone from them and we are lost. We have lost something that we can never have back. And in the midst of that, we are pained because that loss means that we are alone from them. We can never be with them. And in that aloneness, we begin to understand what would happen if I was totally alone? What would happen if there was never a chance where I could ever be who I was made to be, the image of God with Creation with others. I could never be what I was made to be. Well, God saw this. And He said, it's not good that they're alone. Of course, we know that from creation. Man was alone and He said, I'm going to make him a helper. So He did. And He made the woman. And when they were both, both turned out, God said, I, I can't leave them alone. I can't leave them separated from me. And we look at history, biblical history. Look, by the time they're t by the time that original couple's turned out, which is in chapter three of Genesis to chapter eight in Genesis, there's not a good person left. That's what happens when we're alone and separated from God. God was ready to just wipe it all out and start over, and He did. I don't know how many times he probably could have looked to the earth and said, I think I'm just going to wipe them out and start over again. But he would not leave us alone until finally we begin to understand that God was not going to leave us alone. He was going to send one for us. He was going to send the Messiah. And the Messiah would be the one that would make a way for us to be with God. And he would reestablish himself as God over everyone. And we would no longer have to worry about a life that's separated from the will of God and the purpose of God and the blessings of God and the discipline of God because he would be with us and they waited for this Messiah. And at this time of the year, we sing songs. O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. 
We sing the songs like they're prayers. Oh, come, oh, come. God, be with us. God, be with us. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be separated from you. And yet the thing that causes us the most pain is that aloneness. Now, Jesus had come, and he had been faced with every kind of situation that sin could throw at him. From the very beginning, after he'd been baptized, what happens? The Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to, front, to confront his fears. And he does. He does it masterfully. Satan comes and he tries to tempt him. And what does he do? He rattles off verse after verse of Scripture. He knows exactly how to wield off the power of Satan. And that is just to speak and do the will of God. And that's what he did. From that point on until this very moment, he is speaking and doing the will of God. In fact, in John's Gospel, he says, I can only speak what I hear my Father speak. I can only do what I see my Father in heaven do. Everything about his life is wrapped up in that relationship with his father and everything that he is doing on behalf of humankind is because of that relationship and he does it perfectly, sinlessly. And here he stands before a group of people that utterly have no understanding of who he is and he is alone except for his father. His father is still there with him watching over him, caring for him. It's so remarkable when you look at these passages. In the first part, there's this whole thing about Jesus being a political king. The very thing that he refused to be pushed into when he was walking free on the earth was the very thing that they were accusing him of. The irony of all of that. The very thing where he was, he was being accused of sedition and what do they do? But they request to free the one that is actually guilty of sedition. Nothing that is, that is going on is making any kind of sense here. This very end before the crucifixion is as chaotic as much, as much and as, as many of the lives that are lived today. Just full of chaos. Can't make a decision. Can't make the right decision. Can't make two and two equal four no matter how hard you try. And all of this is going on in Jesus' life for the simple reason that someone didn't like him. I was going to talk today about the, the political nature that Christianity has become and how destructive it is to the message of Jesus. But that has nothing to do with most of us here. Most of us here... Most of us here are in love with Jesus because we're no longer alone. When it comes to this crucifixion, Jesus was alone. You know when He cries out, My God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? There's a lot of discussion about that. Some will say, well, we don't really believe God abandoned Jesus on the cross. His love was too great for him. There's others who say, well, he had to abandon him on the cross because he couldn't have anything to do with sin. All I know is what's going on in Jesus' heart and mind that moment because that's all we have here. And Jesus believed he was abandoned. He was experiencing something as a human being and as the Son of God that he had never experienced before and yet had to experience. And in that moment where he breathed his last, 
And in Luke's gospel, he says, it is finished and breathed his last. It is in that moment where Jesus had experienced everything that a human being could experience in the world, including being alone from the Father, and he breathed his last. I'm not so unsure about the prospect that when Jesus found himself totally alone, there was nothing to sustain his life, and so he did just die. Not in agony over days, but he just The price that Jesus had to pay for us to never be alone. For us to know that the God that made us in His image, that the God that has sustained us and made everything around us, refused for us to remain alone. Just as Jesus' death had to conquer death, Jesus' aloneness brings to us a life where we can say, I am no longer alone. God is with us. And He will always be with us. Something wonderful happens in that instant. Jesus breathes His last. Just like that. And the centurion the centurion's the first one to speak. One who had been in this courtyard just moments before. What were they doing? They were dressing him up like a king. They had put a thorn, of, a crown of thorns on his head. They were beating him with a stick and spitting on him, making fun of him. And he's watching this happen. And he sees it. And immediately the smallest of things happens in his mind. And he says, surely this is the Son of God here. Can you imagine the questions that must have been rolling through that guy's head? First of all, what have I done? What have I done here? Did I really just crucify the Son of God? Did I really just do that? And maybe the next question was, why? Why did he do this? Because if Jesus had never been alone, He would never know what it's like for you to be alone. And people, to be alone is the, is the worst. Sin and death is bad. But sin and death and aloneness together, all three, the trivecta of the worst. Jesus would have never understood your aloneness had He never been alone. The door opened ever so slightly for the centurion. But God tore the door wide open for us. You see, it wasn't for God, during Jesus' glory that the, that the veil was torn. It was at His death. It was in that moment of aloneness where God says, exactly why I sent you. So that these people will understand that they are no longer alone in this world. Your aloneness has overcome their aloneness, and I will prove it. And he rips that. Everybody know what the you know everybody know what the veil is? Do you know what the veil is? In the old temple, there was a holy of holies, and it was believed that God was there. Man, that was his residence. 
the, the crucible that carried the Ten Commandments and, and, and the, the staff of, of Aaron. All of that was to be behind there at the Holy of Holies, although none of that was there at the time. There was nothing there. Small little altar. But they believed that's where God lived. And when Jesus died for our sins, and in that utter moment of aloneness, God says, you're not alone anymore. My son has overcome those things for you and for me. I can be your people. I can be your God. And you yourselves can be my people. And there's nothing that will ever separate you again from me. The door is wide open. How do you treat that truth? Really and truly. How do you treat the fact of knowing that Christ has done all of this so that all you have to do is say, Lord, I want to know you. And you can know the God of heaven and earth, the God that created you. Lord, I want to live my life the way you've made me to live. And you can have it. Just like that, because the door is wide open to you because of what Christ has done for you. Lord, I want to be able to love people like you love people and just be able to go to Him and know what that is like and to live that way. Lord, I want to live by the power that you gave your son Jesus to live by so that I can be like Him. And He says, here it is. Live like Him. The door is wide open to you. But are you living in that little, little place where you're hoping that, man, I, I'm not really willing to give my life. I just hope I can squeak in there one day. Maybe I can just squeak in one day. Maybe he won't even know I'm there. I could just squeak in and be okay. we're going to go through the veil that's been torn for us. We've got, to, we've got to go through that the way Jesus went through this. We've got to do it with everything we've got and holding nothing back. And look, God isn't asking us to take a beating and to be crucified to get there. All He's asking us to do is believe that His Son did it for us. Can you imagine that? He goes through all of this and all we're asked to do at the end of that is say, just believe it. Now, believing is not just believing it here. Oh, yeah, I believe it. That idea of belief means that, no, I'm trusting it here. I'm trusting it right here. Everything that I am, I'm trusting. I trust Him. I'm going to live like I trust Him. I'm going to step off in that deep water because I know He's there with me. I'm going to love the sinner because I know He's right there loving them too. I'm going to live my life to honor God because everything that Jesus ever did was to honor God. I can do it. I trust Him. I trust Him with my life. I don't know how to end a 
sermon with Jesus on the cross. I've never left him there, ever. But I think sometimes we need to so that we can remember what Christmas is all about. I think sometimes when we're so busy looking at the manger, we need to be able to look up and see that cross. And know that this wonderful moment in time where God comes to us had a purpose beyond just us feeling good about the fact that He's come to us. That a life died for us. That He was all alone so that we would never have to be alone again. And that when we die to ourselves and trust Him, Everything that he was about has perfect meaning for us. So I pray that for us today. I pray that that's the life that we want to live. I, I pray that that's the life that we, well, that we take up our cross every day and surrender to, that it's that life that we remember. And out of this great moment in, in, in history comes eternal life for us eternal life with God. Let's pray.